I'm Linus. Welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Has he kept his promise? How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer here on Kids Talk Church History. How will a Christian give evidence of his compassion if he has cut himself off from association with other persons? And how will he exercise long-suffering if no one contradicts his wishes? This was a conclusion of a 4th century bishop, Basil of Caesarea, when he thought of the best way to live a Christian life. Since the year 313, Christianity had become legal in the Roman Empire. That meant that Christians were not usually persecuted. Then in 380, Emperor Theodosius made Christianity the official religion of the empire. It made things better, but it also created a problem because some people felt obligated to go to church just out of convenience. Some questioned what it really meant to be a Christian now that Christianity had become a comfortable religion. Some preached against this attitude of indifference, and others went off to deserted areas to spend time in meditation and prayer. Basil did both, and being in the desert was great for prayer and meditation, but he realized that living with others is also very important. In this episode, we will talk about Basil, his brother Gregory, his sister Macrina, and their close friend, also named Gregory. Welcome to this episode of Kids Talk Church History. My name is Lucy, I'm 16, and I live in San Diego, California. I'm Trindy, I'm 15, and live in Charleston, South Carolina. And I'm Christian, I'm 13, and I live in Charleston, South Carolina. And I'm Emma, I'm 15, and I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. Basil and the two Gregories were bishops during the 4th century and are known by the place where they served. So we have Basil of Caesarea, his brother Gregory of Nyssa, and their friend Gregory of Nazianus. They are often known as the three Cappadocians, but their sister Macrina played an important part in their lives, their decisions, and their teachings. Some say she should be known as the fourth Cappadocian. What's a Cappadocian? That's a good question. A Cappadocian just means someone who lives in the region of Cappadocia in today's Turkey. I looked it up, and it's a very beautiful place with unusual-looking mountains. Apparently, you can go over this entire area in a hot air balloon. That would be awesome. Now, there aren't any hot air balloons in our story, but some monks went to live inside caves in those mountains. Some went there to escape persecution and some to find some lonely time with God. You should look at some photos. They're very interesting. But back to our story. The three Cappadocians are mostly famous for two things, for their writings on the Trinity and for their teachings about the Christian life. We'll talk about the Trinity another time because that's quite a big subject to discuss. Trinity, since you're named after that, maybe you could be the moderator for that episode. That's a great idea, Lucy. (laughs) But right now, do you want to tell us about some of these Cappadocians? Sure. I'd like to tell you about Macarena because I think it's a very interesting story. She was born to a Christian family, and when the man she was supposed to marry died just before their wedding day, she decided not to marry anyone else. Instead, she helped her mother, Emilia, especially after her father died. Like you said, she didn't want to be one of those people who go to church just out of convenience and spend the rest of their time without thinking about God. She wanted to do more, so she convinced her mother to turn her home into a community where they and other Christians could live together, devoting time to prayer, singing of hymns, and service to others. And she encouraged Emilia to free all her slaves so that everyone in the community could live on equal terms. She also helped the people in the area. During a famine, when many people were dying, she adopted many orphans. Her example inspired Basil to do something similar in Caesarea. 
Yes, I read that Basil's community included a free hospital with doctors and nurses. Yes, uh, but it was probably different from our hospitals. It was a completely new thing in the ancient world. It included a home for the orphans and the elderly and also the first medical center for lepers. This got the emperor pretty upset. That was Julian, the only emperor at the time who wanted to bring Rome back to the worship of the traditional gods. He was upset because he saw that Basil's example of love and compassion was convincing many people to become Christians. He tried to get his priest to do something similar, but he died before that could even happen. All of these four Cappadocians had a lot to say about love and compassion. In fact, Gregory of Nicaea was the first known preacher to speak out against slavery. It was an unusual message because most people back then accepted slavery as something normal. The Greek philosopher Aristotle thought the world was naturally divided into slaves and owners. Yes, and Gregory also taught people that all human beings are created in the image of God, and so everyone should be treated equally. That was quite revolutionary at the time. I know there were owners freeing their slaves for different reasons, but few of them would think of them as their equals. And even fewer would do what Macarena and Emilia did, who freed their slaves and then shared the chores with them with no difference between them. Yes, it's amazing what a good influence one family could have. All right, now it's time to take a look at our mailbox. We have a question from Angelo in Portland, Oregon about monks. He wants to know if the early monks lived pretty much the same way in different parts of the world. That's a difficult question. We can ask our guest, Dr. Megan DeVore, professor of church history and early Christian studies at Colorado Christian University. But first, let me remind you to send us your questions to this email address, questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org for the opportunity to win a free copy of a book by Simonetta Carr. That's questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org. You can also find it on our website. We'll still be exploring the first five centuries of church history for a few more months, and we'll have lots of amazing experts, so ask anything you've ever wanted to know. And without further ado, let me introduce our expert today, Dr. DeVore. Hi, it's great to be with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Now, let's start off with the letter from Angelo, which read... Did early monks live pretty much the same way throughout different areas of the world? Different communities of monks could be really different. Monks in Egypt and Syria lived different from those in Italy, England, or North Africa. The size could range, as well as the kind of work and service to the community that they engaged in, depending on location. Some common aspects include the choice to give up ownership. They would give away their personal belongings and live in community together, sharing what they had out of the desire to live out Acts 2.42. Sometimes it would be like Macrina and her mother, as you mentioned, opening up their home. Other times, it would be groups of pastors living together in simplicity or elsewhere, encampments in the desert wilderness far outside of cities. Early on, some, like Basil the Cappadocian, did travel to learn from other communities. We eventually have guidebooks for monastic communities as a result. The most famous is a really detailed book called The Rule by a very thoughtful monk named Benedict in the 6th century. Before him, though, in the 4th century, Basil, the brother of Macrina, wrote a really practical guide, an explanation of the monastic life. 
I think you read some of that at the beginning, didn't you, Lucy? I did. Uh, thank you for that answer. Um, I just have one more question concerning that. Um, did these groups of monks travel around to similar communities to to learn from them and be taught? They did. Um, even Basil traveled around to different areas um, to learn from other communities, to see what was done well and what needed to be improved on. And now we have a few questions of our own about Macrina and the other Cappadocians and generally about the lives of Christians at that time. Now, I've read that Macrina's brothers looked up to her for advice. Gregory wrote about a long conversation he had with her about life after death. He was discouraged after the death of one of their brothers, and she helped him to see what the Bible really teaches about the resurrection of the body. It seems that there were many women at that time who studied the scriptures and could discuss uh, many difficult subjects. I've read that Marcella in Rome studied Greek and Hebrew so she could understand the scriptures. Was this unusual for a woman at that time? There were more intelligent women in church history than we often talk about. And I think we should definitely give them attention. Since the time of Paul, with figures like Priscilla and Phoebe, to authors like Perpetua in the year 203, to women like Macrina, and near her time, the poetess Proba, there are so many more over the centuries, these numerous learned Christian women who impacted their communities with their wisdom and instruction. One early apologist named Tatian even said that the Christians valued the education of women more than the surrounding culture did. Now, the education of daughters was more common in Roman culture than we often acknowledge, but extensive learning, like what Perpetua or Macrina or Marcella had, also depended on the financial ability of her family to dedicate money to her learning. And concerning um, monasteries or other forms of Christian communities, uh, just how common were they in the ancient world? Because it seems that many Christians felt the need to go out into the desert to be alone with God and pray, or to create some kind of community that focused on service and prayer. Was it really that way, or is that just the people that we read about? Did most Christians think that was a better way to live the Christian life? It does help to remember what was happening in the wider culture. As you mentioned earlier, Lucy, it became increasingly easy to be a Christian in name alone at this time, maybe to get a political office, for example. So now we have the generations that are the grandchildren of those who had suffered under the great persecution. And they're asking, what does it mean now to be a Christian in every aspect of my life? How do I obey the Beatitudes if there isn't any more persecution? What does it look like to imitate Christ? And as Paul would say, to live a disciplined life, fully devoted to God. Some, like the Cappadocians, would choose to live with other Christians in a very simple lifestyle for accountability and partnership and following the Great Commission. Others, though these others were the minority, did feel convicted that following Christ meant living alone in the wilderness, like Christ did for 40 days, or Elijah during parts of his ministry, or Moses on Mount Sinai to focus on prayer. Not many of them actually stayed isolated for their whole lives. Many of them returned to some form of community 
and then discipled others, like a famous fourth century monk named Antony. It was the kind of Christian life in community, though, in what soon became known as monasteries, that we're not isolated from people, but we're shared with other Christians, reaching out in ministry to others, like Macrina. And that became really common for Christians to partake in for nearly a thousand years. In fact, monasteries would actually help society hold together when the Roman Empire crumbled around them. That said, there is evidence that there are plenty of Christians in every social class and education level who did not choose the monastic lifestyle, and they still lived in dedication to the gospel in their own way. Dr. DeVore, since you listened to our conversation about Macrina and the other Cappadocians, did we misunderstand anything or leave anything out that was important? Gosh, there's so much with the Cappadocians. They're absolutely amazing, aren't they? Mm -hmm. I think you're right to um, devote another time to talk about the Trinity. The Cappadocians are really smart to say, we have to talk about God. But we also have to know when our words fall silent and when we simply talk to God in prayer. Um, and so far, everything that you've been covering is phenomenal. That's great. There's also a question from another listener, Lisa from Charleston, South Carolina. She said, in what ways do you think the early church of the first and second century is like the church today? I think it can apply to the third and fourth century, too. Oh, that is such a fun, big question, isn't it? I It's neat to start with the big picture. We worship the same God, the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the same God sustains us, just like he sustained the church then. The fourth century in particular was a time of great change and new challenges, political controversies, new technology, and even great divisions in the church about how to interact with the culture around them. Just like today, we are asking, I think, just like our ancestors did in the fourth century, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be the church? And how are we to live out Jesus's commands in our world today? But they also gathered on Sundays and sang together. They listened to a teaching on scripture. They took communion, just like we do today. And when we read their sermons and their letters, we see that people wrestled with some of the same questions we do about God, about poverty, about jobs, about government, about parenting, about prayer. The centuries actually don't feel that far away sometimes. Mm, that was really wonderful. Thank you. So I have a question on the subject of monks. I read that there were some very extreme cases, like one who spent 40 years of his life on top of a pillar and kept adding stones to the pillar until it became over 20 feet tall, which is taller than a giraffe, which is kind of wild. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he had some good reason for doing that, even if it's hard for us to understand. Why do you think he did it? <laughs> he is extreme. He is a rare exception, and I think he became a bit of a celebrity with historical exaggerations along the way that have been probably been made. I, I want to assume, like you, that he did have strong reasons. I think he was really seeking communion with God in focused prayer. 
Maybe he really wanted to take literally Christ in, Christ's instructions. Consider the sparrows and how they live. I would reply that we can pray without ceasing in the midst of our activities, in the midst of following the great commands and the great commission in messy communities. Basil the Cappadocian and Macrina thought the same thing, that we needed one another um, rather than a pillar. Uh, but Simeon was a man of determination. Okay. I guess that no pillars for me. Um, so you mentioned that a lot, that part of it could very well be um, exaggerated. Do you, how much do you think is fabricated and how much is real? Oh, goodness. We even have um, some remains. We think of the pillar and certainly stories about him. And there's usually seeds to truth in stories. And so I really wonder if he was taking a lot of the scriptures literally, meditate on the scriptures day and night, pray without ceasing, consider the sparrows. I There could be some reality here. It seems as though food and water was even possibly kind of sent up in a bucket. And who knows what was sent down in that bucket. Um, <laughs> but he's certainly fascinating. But I can see why even Basil and Macrina probably I wouldn't be fully on board with that. Thank you again, Dr. DeVore. As usual, we have two questions we ask all of our guests. First, how did you become interested in church history? And what suggestions do you have for kids who want to learn more? Oh, these big questions are so fun and so hard to answer. I, how I became interested in her church history, I think I've always loved learning about the past. I think it makes us more observant about the present. When I was a young Christian and first began to read through the Bible, I noticed that the command to remember was everywhere, from Deuteronomy to Hebrews to Jeremiah to the Psalms. Remember what God has done in the past. Remember whose you are in the present. And take hope in that the God who was is still the God who is and will be. So no matter how messy things seem in the past or how broken they seem in the past or present, I love church history because it reminds me that God is God amidst it all. And that's amazing. I also love art history and literature, poetry, and church architecture. All of these things are aspects of church history. There is great power in walking through old cathedrals where thousands of Christians have prayed before us, and the light streams through dancing and stained glass in a way that compels us to worshipful awe, um, or in gazing in an artwork from centuries ago that portrays a scene in the scripture in a way that I wouldn't have pictured. With church history, I can study and teach and write about all the things that I love. And do it in a way that says, this is my family history as a Christian. That's amazing. And uh, what would you say to people who want to learn more about church history? Have humble hearts and critical minds. Don't think that the past is perfect and needs to be recreated. But be willing to listen to it and consider it. Even when the past seems really strange. Be lifelong learners. Look for writings by Christians in the past, in every century, but 
But remember that Christians didn't just write long books and prayers and sermons. They built buildings and made artworks in those buildings. Those are plenty of ways of speaking, and we can listen to those. So I would say, go to historic churches in your hometowns. Experience the architecture. Look for old hymns and prayers. Talk with the older generations in your churches. Hear their stories. And explore online museum collections with Christian artifacts. Get some books on the history of Christian art. There are so many ways to learn about the past if we have a willingness to listen and learn with wonder and grace and truth. All right, Dr. DeVore, again, thank you so much for deciding to spend your time with us today on the podcast and for being willing to share all of your knowledge with us. But unfortunately, now it's time for us to say goodbye. Once again, dear listeners, make sure that you visit our website, kidstalkchurchhistory.org. That's where you'll find all of our podcasts, special offers, news, and more. And if you subscribe to our email newsletter, you'll have a chance to win a copy of Simonetta Carr's new book, Church History. And don't forget to tell all of your friends where they can find us. Now, in partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and on behalf of my co-hosts, Trinity, Emma, and Christian, my name is Lucy. Thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History.